When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and uh, welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. My name is Andreas Stino, your very own Chewbacca of Finance, sending to you live four out of five weeks today. My colleague Ash will send to you tomorrow. But uh, it is today, Monday, the 12th of December, and we have a tremendous week ahead of us with the CPI reading out of the US tomorrow and obviously also the Fed meeting on Wednesday afternoon. So today we're going to ask the question whether the Fed will hike 50 basis basis points and be done by Wednesday. And I'm joined by a great guy and a great macro thinker, Bilal Hafiz, the CEO and founder of MacroHype, to help me understand the answer to that question. Great to see you, Bilal. It's a pleasure to host you here. Likewise, great to see you too, Andreas. And I didn't know your nickname was Chewbacca, so maybe I'll have to call you Chewbacca from now on. <laughs> Feel free to do so. Uh, <laughs> but before we get to the discussion on the dollar markets and the Federal Reserve, I would like to bring up a topic that is even more present today, namely the electricity price in the UK. Uh, you're based out of London, Bilal. Uh, and I saw a couple of charts uh, making the rounds on social media today with a price of electricity between 5 and 6 p.m. of almost two and a half thousand sterling per megawatt hour. What is going on in UK electricity markets today? Well, I think there's a few different things going on. One is there's been an unusual drop in wind power. Uh, UK generates a lot of energy or electricity through wind power. That's that's uh, declined. Uh, it's somewhat less windy in the UK at the moment. Uh, on top of that, we, we've had a significant cold snap. So there's sub-zero temperatures over the past uh, few days. In fact, in London, it's been snowing, which is a fairly unusual. Um, and then, um, then on top of that, there because of the snow, ironically, uh, certain uh, generators across the UK have uh, have uh, have stopped working, and so we've had this incredible jump in electricity prices at peak times. Uh, and this could well last uh, at least uh, a week or so more. The weather forecast, at least uh, for uh, a week or so's time, is for the weather to get more mild. So maybe this won't uh, continue for too long. But it does still suggest that we are in a, in a very fragile state when it comes to electricity prices. If we look at the current status of the European electricity crisis, or rather the European energy crisis. It's obviously cold here, as you mentioned right now. We have a lack of wind, it's dry, and we have no rain. It's not really the perfect cocktail for the European energy mix. But if we look a bit ahead, like two, three months ahead, you've called this crisis a managed crisis by now. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, so far, you know, Europe has been able to uh, you know, increase its uh, gas storage over the course of the winter. They've also encouraged industrial sectors, in some case mandated sectors, to reduce their use of 
uh, energy, uh, especially in Germany and France and 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 also Spain. So in that sense, it's been managed um, over over the over these uh, few months. Uh, and in the UK as well, to some extent, there's been some management as well, at least in terms of price caps. The challenge, though, is at what point does it go from being a managed crisis to an uncontrollable crisis, which will be the big question for 2023. Yeah. If we look at the ramifications for the inflation outlook, both in the UK, but also in the Eurozone, um, what's your take on the near-term outlook for inflation in Europe relative to the near-term outlook for inflation in the US? Yeah, I mean, I think the interesting question or point about inflation is that in Europe, we've seen more energy-related inflation. So it hasn't spilled as much into core inflation. Uh, whereas the U.S. has had broad-based inflation, both energy as well as core. But what we are starting to see in Europe now is a build-up in core inflationary pressures, and that's been building up. In the U.S., it's started to stabilize, so it seems like there's some light at the end of the tunnel for, for the U.S. But in Europe, core starting to pick up. So not only is there energy inflation, which... Uh, which is a persistent issue in Europe, you're starting to see pick up in core. And, and the big debate is really around wages uh, in Europe, especially Eurozone, where uh, a significant amount of uh, sectors are public sectors and there's union negotiated wages, uh, especially in say places like France and Germany. And it does look like in 2023, we'll start to see more wage increases uh, mandated or negotiated through unions. Uh, this year, they've been able to control it, especially in France, but next year they will start to pick up. So that's really the, in, in some ways, Europe and including the UK has lagged the, the US, at least when it comes to core inflation, and, and that could become a bigger issue next year. Let's get back to the discussion on the repercussions for the outlook um, for rate hikes from Bank of England and the European Central Bank. But before we get to that, I would like to touch um, base upon the interesting week that we have ahead of us in dollar markets. We uh, have the inflation report coming out tomorrow morning, Eastern time, and then the um, Federal Reserve coming up Wednesday afternoon. What's your take on the inflation report, first of all, and do you think it's an important bellwether ahead of the meeting on Wednesday? Um, well, in terms of the inflation number, um, the key metric to look at is the core number rather than headline, and on top of that, the month-on-month -month number rather than the year-on-year -year number. The consensus for tomorrow's number, for Tuesday's number, is 0.3% month-on-month -month change in core CPI. Um, my take is that we could actually see us uh, a positive and up uh, higher than expected surprise. So it could end up coming out at 0.4.5. And one of the reasons is we we the last number was lower than expected. So we've had a run of weaker or lower than expected numbers. And I think now there's some scope for some uh, pullback or you know, reversals back to, towards higher numbers. Recent numbers have been affected by certain changes in, in medical prices, the way they're sort of adjusted annually. Um, but this number should start to see uh, the, the numbers start to pick back up again, not least by stronger wage pressures that uh, came in, in the reference uh, period. So I think it'll be higher than expected number for, for CPI. Um, and then we have the Fed, of course, uh, you know, after that as well. Is the market prepared for a surprise to the upside in this CPI number? Well, that's a good question because 
the market, the way the market's been responding to inflation data is uh, asymmetrically. So when we have had positive surprises, even a few months ago, the market didn't react too strongly to it. it. The market almost shrugged it off, whereas the market seems to be more sensitive to lower than expected surprises and it likes to rally on that. Um, so it'll be an important test to see whether that still holds. My sense is that I think the market will be sensitive to a higher than expected number. I think there's a growing consensus of the Fed pivot, the end of the Fed hiking cycle, and we're coming into year end as well. And I think that as we come to year end, uh, market liquidity goes down, you, you tend to see exaggerated moves. So I do think the market will be very sensitive to, to this if we do get an upside surprise. We asked the question initially in today's show whether it could be a 50 basis point hike on Wednesday and done from the Federal Reserve. Um, we are probably approaching the end of this hiking cycle, but what's your sense here? Um, will it be the final rate hike or do you expect more rate hikes into the early parts of next year? Um, well, I do agree it will be 50 basis points, but I don't think that will be the end of the hiking cycle. If you, if you look even within the Fed themselves, they are continually talking about at least uh, a higher terminal rate than just uh, a 50 basis point hike from, from tomorrow. Markets seem to be gravitating towards 5.25 or so for, for next year. Um, my, but my, my sense more generally is I think that there's a, a real chance that we could go above five to maybe six, seven, or even 8% in, in the Fed in the coming year or so. Um, and the main reason for that is inflation, the inflation dragon, so to speak, hasn't been slain yet. Um, there still is still underlying inflationary pressures, especially in the labor market. Um, and I think that will end up uh, leading to more persistent inflation than uh, the market and economists are expecting. So what does that mean to the yield curve? Um, we've seen flattening of the spread between twos and fives recently as a consequence of the five-year yield dropping more than the two-year yield. What do you make of that flattening? Is it related to this potential pivot or is it related to inflation? Yeah, I think it is related to the, the pivot. Uh, as you rightly pointed out, you know, while twos, tens curve overall has flattened significantly, most of that has been driven by uh, a flattening of the twos, fives part of the curve. So what the market's really saying there is that the Fed's coming close to the end of its hiking cycle, and there'll be some easings uh, coming soon after. And, and in some ways, the market's saying the neutral rate or the long-term rate for the Fed is lower than, than everyone thinks. And, that, uh, and what the market's saying there is that the Fed is more sensitive right now to growth weakness than it is to inflation. In some ways, the Fed is comfortable with the inflation trajectory. And this is something we've talked about in our research over the past month, that markets are actually pricing inflation to be around 3% next year. Um, and uh, yet the Fed will be cutting rates. So the market is essentially saying that the Fed has already raised its inflation target to 3%. Whereas the formal target is 2%. Uh, and, and so one challenge for the Fed is, uh, will the Fed uh, reiterate that it has a 2% target rather than 3%? Market saying, no, the Fed actually is comfortable with 3% as its inflation target. And the Fed has to convince the market otherwise. Um, if it doesn't, then we, we will uh, see continued uh, inversion of the curve. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Bilal, what's your take on this discussion on a potential new inflation target at, say, 3% or even 4% mentioned by some pundits? Is it a feasible scenario at all next year? Yeah, I mean, I think that there is, of course, a chance that they do this. Of course, you know, a year or so ago, the the Fed changed its inflation target by going uh, looking at average inflation targeting in the middle of a supply shock, which was which was odd for them to do that. And now, I would say, when you're when you're dealing with inflation, when you want to dr- bring inflation down, the last thing you should do is raise your inflation target because the market then will get really worried that you are um, not as credible on fighting inflation. So far, the Fed has actually been able to manage long-term inflation expectations relatively well. And I think that if they were to raise the target, that will undo a lot of their credibility that they've built up. Yeah, I tend to agree, uh, Bilal. The cutting cycle being priced in to the second half of next year and already before summer actually uh, in 2023 is quite interesting um, when it comes to the discussion on whether a recession is priced into markets already or not. Um, What's your take overall on the discussion? Um, Is a recession priced in and how deep a recession is priced in in case? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, certainly it does seem like a recession is priced in. You know, the yield curve is is heavily inverted and we have these recession probability models where, which we are built, uh, derived from the yield curve. And that at the moment is saying there's a 90% chance of a recession next year. When you look at consensus economic forecasts for next year, they are expecting a recession next year, a mild one. Um, uh, and then, um, you know, when you look at equities and credit, that's less clear whether they're pricing uh, a recession yet or not. You know, certainly earnings expectations for next year are still fairly robust. So it's unclear whether equities are pricing a recession. But but definitely, if you put everything together, it does seem like markets are pricing a recession. The, the main thing I would say is that we're in a very unusual cycle right now. Since COVID, in essence, what's happened is we've had this huge shocks to some sectors and a rebalancing of the economy from you know from from certain sectors to other sectors um and so while it may look like some parts of the economy are in recession other parts may not be in recession i think that's the challenge we're going to have next year um for example earlier this year the us had some negative gdp growth so technically that was a recession yet it didn't feel like a recession And I think this is a hangover from the COVID period where if you look at the labor market, for example, what you see is that there's certain sectors in the economy, such as, uh, um, you know, the health sector, uh, restaurants, hotels, where there's a labor shortage. There aren't enough people in those sectors. There's less people working in those sectors today than there were before COVID. So those are booming, you could say, or there's a, a shortage there, and that will likely remain the case over the course of next year. On the other hand, if you look at the labor market, at least, there's uh, there's more people employed in the tech sector, financial services, and warehouses uh, today than there were before COVID. So that's overheating, and that's likely to see job cuts there, a re- recessionary-type dynamics there. So in some ways, we have a two-track economy, and so it may look like one part of the economy is in recession, yet uh, the other side of the economy is not in recession. So I think that's, that's the big challenge that we have today. 
In relation to that exact discussion, I wanted to play a uh, soundbite for you from a discussion between Colin Roche and uh, Joseph Wang on inflation and the Fed reaction function. Joseph Wang is very vocal that the risk of elevated inflation is higher than the risk of a deep recession. So let's listen to Joseph and get back to that discussion. My thesis is fundamentally that the risk is much the risk to inflation getting out of control is much higher than a recession, and that has to do with two reasons. The first is that when we think about recession, what we're really thinking about is the human toil of recession. Now, that's the only reason why anyone cares about it. When there's a recession, a lot of people lose their jobs, and that's very sad. However, when you look at the data, unemployment is at a record low, and help wanted signs are everywhere. I think this is because there's a fundamental demographic shift where there's not as many workers available anymore. And so that means that even if we do have a recession, it's not going to have a significant human cost. And from my perspective, that means even if we have a recession, it's, it's not a, as big an issue as it would be in the past. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. The entire great rate debate is already available for our subscribers at the Real Vision platform today. But uh, back to you, Bilal. Um, the risk of a recession and the risk of elevated inflation. How do you actually manage that cocktail as a central banker right now? It must be tricky. Absolutely. I think it's very, very hard. I think one reason it's very hard is that we haven't really had a true inflation problem for about 30, 40 years. It's only really uh, going back to the early 80s and 70s where we last had that issue. And if we do back, if we do look back to the 1970s, what we do find is that inflation is something that affects everybody in the economy. And as a result, it tends to lead to more social unrest, more political unhappiness, whereas recession hurts um, a smaller part of the economy, i.e. the the people who lose their jobs, which is not everybody. And so in general, inflation is the thing that central bankers really want to focus on more. And emerging market countries know this, you know, whenever they come up faced with inflation, they raise rates dramatically. And this is one of the odd things we saw after COVID that uh, emerging market central banks raise rates faster than developed uh, central bank. Central bankers did Brazil, for example, raise rates very aggressively because they know that when you have high inflation, people get unhappy and you have social unrest, you have strikes, you have all sorts of uh, move towards populism and so on. So I do think that the central bank will be much more focused on, on inflation, on the inflation risk than the recession risk going forward. So I'd, I'd agree with, uh, with the, the segment that was shown just now. If we look at the European and British situation, um, it seems as if the dilemma between inflation and recession is even bigger than in the US. Um, let's take a look at the uh, example of Bank of England. Um, what do you make of their battle against inflation? 
Yeah, I mean, I think they have a very tough battle, you know, because you're seeing significant weakness um, expected in the economy. Um, so if you look at expectations by the Bank of England, they, they are saying that the UK will have quite a deep recession. So in their view, they'd say that they don't need to raise rates as much because we're going to see a recession in the UK. And so they're hoping that that would be the, the main sort of driver. Um, and, and moreover, UK and Europe in general, because there's an energy shock that's affecting Europe a lot, more so than the US, which has its own domestic energy production, there's a question mark as to whether central banks can uh, print energy, so to speak, whether they can create energy or not, whether they're the right institution to deal with an energy shock. And I think the Bank of England's in, the, in a very difficult situation in, in that regard, um, not, not only do you have all of these issues, but also you have Brexit as well to deal with. Um, so it's a tough dilemma for them. I think they're, they're likely to go 50 basis points uh, this week. They're going to, they're, but when you listen to the Bank of England, they're always trying to sound dovish. They, they're really reluctantly hiking all the time. Whereas someone like the ECB, they're, they've almost embraced turning hawkish. They're almost kind of pivoting towards more hawkish bias as they get more comfortable with with the energy situation and they, they get more focus on inflation. Yeah, I tend to agree with that assessment, Bilal. And I've also noticed how Lagarde is sounding more and more confident in this hiking cycle, despite the recession risks ahead for the European Union as well. If we um, look at the pound sterling, we get a lot of questions on the sterling uh, in relation to this discussion on Bank of England. Um, you, I remember you pointing out that the sterling probably could turn into a decent buy right in the middle of the storm a few months back when yeah. we had this... Um, uh, overall story of pension funds potentially br breaking up, um, Bank of England uh, stepping in to buy bonds um, in the middle of a, a complete panic in bond markets in, in, in the UK. Um, but what do you make of the sterling right now in the context of this inflation versus recession debate? Yeah, I mean, yeah, when the when the pound's tumbling, you know, around that time, we thought it's time to buy the pound because the crisis would end very quickly, at least that short term crisis. And it the pound did end up rallying after that. Now, today, I think the pound doesn't have a, a specific UK story. You know, back then there was a UK story where you you almost knew as soon as there was intervention to, to help the pension market, then you knew things would turn around. Today, we have a more for generalized dollar story where the dollar is generally weak when stocks are rallying and, and vice versa. So, you know, the, the, the dollar is behaving like a risk-off currency. And so in general, whichever way stocks go, that's where the pound goes. And if stocks are up like they are today, then the pound tends to be a bit more stable. Um, whereas if, if stocks were to sell off, then the pound would, would also start to sell off. So I think the pound doesn't have a, a unique story by itself. Longer term, I do think there is an issue for the pound, uh, a negative, uh, a bearish picture for the pound. Um, partly because I think the Bank of England won't do enough to uh, bring inflation down. So uh, interest rates adjusted for inflation will be low or negative. Also, I think that there are still ongoing issues in the UK pension sector, which will end up hurting hurting the UK. And the UK, in the end, is is um, is a much smaller economy than than the eurozone or the US. And so the UK always needs to do uh, some, something extra to to attract capital to fund its current account deficit. So longer term, I think the UK has lots of issues which will end up dragging the pound down. But for now, at least, it's it's just bouncing around with with the broader dollar moves. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. 
the sterling is a residual of global equity markets. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a bit about global equity markets um, as a consequence of that. Uh, Bilal, you've been um, pretty clear in your recent communication to clients that you are underway both bonds and equities, and uh, you have a pretty uh, clear tilt towards your cash position. Is that something that you consider changing into 2023, or is it a position that you like still? It's a position I still like, and the overall rationale is actually very simple, and that is that we've been in an environment of very low interest rates for the last 10, 15 years, um, and we're entering a new regime of higher interest rates. Um, and you know, everyone's got so used to uh, an environment of low rates. Everyone's desperate always to buy risk, buy equities, and so on. But we're in a fundamentally different regime. You you kind of have to go back to the 70s or earlier to to go back to a period that's similar to, to now. And I think in general, when you're in this kind of inflationary type environment, interest rates not at zero, they're four or five percent. That's a very difficult environment for, for equities as a whole. So my my overall take is that that's still an environment where you want to be underweight equities. Um, and uh, you know while equities could you know rally uh, you know as they've had as they have over the past few, few weeks, I think the rallies will be limited. Um, and and the risk is that you could get outsize uh, moves to the downside, more blow-ups in different types of markets. We've had numerous blow-ups over the course of this year, you know, from the FTX crypto blow-up to UK pension funds, but there'll be many more accidents along the way as well. Um, so so overall comfortable with the stance of being short equities. And I think in, in this type of environment, that's the, the prudent thing to do. I wanted to show a chart for you uh, on U.S. equities um, relative to dollar liquidity. Uh, I think we can bring the chart up on the screens, Brian, because I've had a look at uh, a proxy for dollar liquidity based on the asset base of the Federal Reserve minus uh, the usage of the so-called reverse repo facility and minus the um, overall level of the Treasury general account. So this is sort of a proxy of the overall liquidity level uh, of the financial system in the U.S., and then in the dotted line, we have the forecast based on um, the quarterly treasury funding report um, and also an assessment on future uh, flows from QT uh, driving down the asset base and the spillovers to the reverse repo from that. That proxy gives a decent direction, I'd say, for equities. Um, and it points to a level around 3,500-ish in the S&P 500 into next year. Do you think it's feasible to look at equities um, as sort of a proxy of liquidity overall, or do you have other gauges that you tend to look at when you assess the outlook for equities? No, I think that's a great chart, and it's a great way of expressing that, that idea of liquidity turning. So I think that is definitely one of the big, big factors. Uh, liquidity, um, looking at the central bank balance sheet, you can also just look at int real interest rates themselves um, as, as a sort of a price measure. Um, then, then also one can also look at fundamentals as well, look at earnings expectations and its link to, to growth overall. Um, so I think these are all great measures. And I do agree, I think they do point to, to weaker uh, weaker growth, uh, weaker equities going forward. Um, and as you can see, you know, within those charts, it doesn't necessarily mean equities will go down in a straight line. There are periods where liquidity improves, where expectations are that interest rates are going to start to fall, which ends up boosting boosting equities. But the broader trend, the longer term trend, is one that the liquidity environment will be worse, much worse than it has been over the past 10 years.
And I think we need to remember to give a hat tip to our friend Darius Dale from 42 Macro for bringing this chart to our attention last week. Um, great chart. And um, I think it makes a lot of sense as well to look at liquidity in the context of uh, equity markets. Bilal, if we look into 2023, what could wrong foot your view on a high cash balance? Um, what is the dark horse here in a positive sense? Yeah, there's a couple of different things. Um, you know, one um, one clear one would be something around the rest of the world uh, growth perspective. So we are seeing, of course, right now a China reopening story. If that ends up going very smoothly and we end up seeing a very sharp recovery in China, um, property issues abating somewhat, and we get Chinese growth back up towards six percent or if not higher, uh, you know, going from very low to high level, that could be something. Think that could affect our view. If the European energy situation is not as bad as, as we expect it to be, um, then that could be something positive. And then the other, on the other side, if the Fed does indeed stop, you know, they hike 50 this week and then they end up stopping. Um, and uh, the reason for them stopping would be important. So if inflation does end up falling very sharply, which I don't think it will, but if it does, then that could be something positive as well. So there are a number of different things uh, that, that could occur, you know, next year. And more, more, more sort of fundamentally or structurally, one thing that could surprise us all next year is if productivity ends up being much, much higher next year than we expect. At the moment, this year, productivity has been fairly weak. Um, and so as a result, growth has been a you know, not as strong as it could have been. And if you look at forecast for growth next year, we have recessionary type forecast for next year. But productivity is much, much higher. And the reason productivity could be higher is that there's been a lot of capex over the course of this year. Companies have been spending a lot on infra on equipment, infrastructure, and so on. So in theory, that should lead to higher productivity. Um, and also, when when you have to raise wages, uh, which companies are having to do companies then and workers everybody starts to get more focused on increasing their productivity to to manage you know the, the cost base so productivity is probably the thing that I, I probably would would focus the most on from a structural perspective that could change uh, change my view we have a question coming in from colin in relation to this discussion he's asking you Bilal, whether investors will be willing to look past poor q1 earnings when they are expecting aggressive fed cuts later in the year yeah, that's a good question. And I think that um, there is a real chance that if the market starts to, or if the Fed becomes more dovish than it currently is, and remember the market is pricing quite a dovish scenario for the Fed already, and we do get poor Q1, then the market could shrug that off. But um, if the market continues to have a similar profile as we have now, then I think a, a weak Q1 earnings um, could be quite bad for, for stocks. And so, you know, so far, if you look at earnings, they haven't really been, they haven't fallen off a cliff yet. And so if we were to see weak Q1 numbers in earnings, that I think would be quite bad for, for, for stocks overall. Um, and I don't think the Fed could become more dovish than it already is. We have time for a final question, Bilal, and it's a biggie, if you ask me. It's from Paul, our member. He's asking you whether you find it feasible that the Fed will ever get back to a 2% inflation level or whether they will have to eventually settle for something higher than that. That's a great question. And, um, you know, that's something we'll find out next year, I suppose. My, my, my base case is they will. Um, we will see inflation going back to two, but 
that would mean the Fed will have to raise rates to seven, maybe even eight percent. And it's not clear whether they have the stomach to do that. What we do know from history is that when Volcker came in, initially he was actually a bit more hesitant and he kind of stepped back a bit. Inflation ended up going higher. And at that point, he, he ended up having to raise rates 20% to, to bring inflation down. And I think something similar could be happening now where Powell and the Fed think that they may have controlled inflation, but then within a few months, they realize they haven't. And that will be the point where they, they end up having to raise rates faster. So, so I think they will end up uh, bringing inflation down to two, but it means that there'll be more pain along the way. I've made it my trademark to always conclude the daily briefing with a meme, and uh, I wanted to show a meme that made me laugh so hard earlier today um, on the discussion on whether a recession is priced. And it's obviously a couple of dinosaurs talking to each other ahead of the Big Bang. Um, that really looks bad. Relax, my friend. It's already priced in. Um, I'll leave you uh, with that uh, for today. Bilal Hafiz, it was a great pleasure hosting you at the Real Vision platform. Thank you for joining us. Great. Likewise, yeah, it was, it was great to uh, spend time with you today, Andreas. Thank you, Bilal. Um, thanks out there for watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing. My colleague Ash will be back tomorrow with Tony Greer guesting the show. See you there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.